Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and Mike Nicoletti. Each week, we discuss topics ranging from geopolitics and macroeconomics to energy and technology. You can sign up for our newsletter at telltales.us. That's T-E-L-L-T-A-L-E-S dot U-S for additional data and content you can use to follow along. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Well, it's past 3.30. We got to start. Not too much to say about oil and natural gas prices. I do have a memo on natural gas prices that I will get in Mike and Jason's hands, and they, they may put it on their website. Basically, what it calls for or what it predicts is $3 gas in 23. And we've also already had some $2 gas, 230, $240 gas. I, I think gas, well, the, the futures, we're only, you know, we're only like two months in. The future for the remainder of the uh, year is around $3. And I think that'll probably hold. And then $4 in next year. And I have to say that that $4 price next year could extend uh, it's going to depend on two things, I think. It's going to depend on the level of activity in the Permian because the principal source of extra gas has been associated gas in the Permian, the Delaware Basin and the Midland Basin, the two sub-basins in the Permian. And that's caused by more oil production there, means more gas, but the Wolfcamp Formation, which is the principal formation producing in the uh, Delaware and the Midland, the oil declines faster than the gas does. So you look at any permanent basin producer, you're going to see kind of an incline in the gas production. And you see that because the hub out there, the Waha hub, you should only trade at about 40 cents under Henry Hub or Houston Chip Channel. It's been trading a dollar or more. And the reason it should only trade 40, 50 cents is that's the cost of firm transportation from West Texas, the Waha hub, to, to the Texas Gulf Coast. I'll get it to Mike and Jason, and they'll put it up on the website, and we can talk about it again next week. And the impact on Antero and EQT and Chesapeake, the three companies that are covered here on page 12. And we'll cover that next week. On oil pricing, I would say the... The risk on oil pricing was China under lockdown, but now that China's out from lockdown and they seem to be progressing, the statistics coming out of China show, you know, definitely an improving economy. I think the risk now on the downside and, and, and Europe has come through pretty well. So, you know, you'd expect to see some additional economic activity in in Europe. And, you know, in the U.S., economists are debating between hard landing, a soft landing, or no landing at all. So, I mean, all those things will help oil demand. I would say the risk with for oil WTI in the 70s, mid-70s, is a, uh, a ceasefire in Ukraine. Not that it'll make that much difference. I mean, I think Russian oil will still be sanctioned. Um, and I can't imagine that the European countries are going to want to have the kind of dependence they had on, on Russian gas. But 
Now, why? How, how, how would a ceasefire happen? Well, first of all, China is going to apparently use its influence with Putin and the, and the leadership around Putin to move towards a ceasefire. I think the Russian stance is going to be that they, 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 they annexed Crimea six or seven years ago and they want to hang on to that. They want to hang on to the parts of eastern Ukraine that they were able to take and hold. Um, the question is, how does the government of Ukraine agree to that? And I think one way they would agree to it, I don't know whether how Russia would react to it, is just, you know, have NATO adopt uh, Ukraine. And of course, the NATO countries all benefit from Article 5, which says, if you invade one of us or take military action against one of us, you, you're, you're at war with all of us. So uh, I'm not predicting that, but I, I can see where you'd have a ceasefire. It would look very much, I think, like North Korea and South Korea, where they continued shoot at e- shooting at each other all over the demarcation line or whatever it was called for the demilitarized zone for a long time. And so I, I, I think it's that example or that, that model of North Korea and South Korea that might happen. I, I, I'm not sure how much change that would make in supply demand for oil. I don't think oil supply is really that constrained at the moment. Maybe half a million barrels a day from Russia. But of course, the, the largest producer in the world is us, actually, thanks to Shell. Second largest is Saudi Arabia. Third largest is Russia. And Russia's, you know, rather than 10 million barrels a day, it's nine and a half or something. So I don't think it makes that much difference on supply. But I just think psychologically, you'd see a downdraft in the price of oil. With that, I want to spend about five or six minutes on Exhibit A of the 20-page memo. For those who don't have the 20-page memo in front of you, I'll try to talk through the numbers. I think it's available on the website. I see some numbers here that I think are off, mostly the GMP line, uh, which I'm going to work on some more this weekend. So next week's version will be cleaned up a bit. But what this page does is it, it has revenue and expenses for the U.S. government. And the first line is individual income tax. And for those who don't have it in front of you, I'm going to read off a number that is the 22 number. It was $2.6 trillion. Payroll taxes, which are you know how we finance Social Security and Medicare and whatnot, were one and a half trillion. Corporate income tax was 430 billion, and everything else is around 400 billion as well. Everything else is excise taxes. The Federal Reserve, when it makes a profit, state taxes, which aren't very much, a, a total amount of state taxes collected each year is around 30 billion dollars. So it's it's really peanuts. People do extraordinary things to keep from paying a state tax. So that adds up to just under $5 trillion. That's the amount of money coming in. And our GNP last year was $25 trillion. So that's about 20% of our GNP. That's probably up a little. I think it, it had run as low as 185 or 19%. But you know, 20%, good round number. 
that's what the government has coming in to pay for all its expenses. Now, in the next several lines, I put, I collect the Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, pensions paid to federal employees, pensions paid to veterans and other veterans' expense. And Social Security last year was a trillion two. Medicare was just under a trillion. Medicaid was around 600 billion. I believe that split on average 50-50 with the state. So the state contribution was probably another 600 billion. Federal pensions were 120 billion. Veterans pensions were 70 billion. And other costs or benefits or what have you for our veterans was 160 billion for just a little over $3 trillion. So 60% of the $5 trillion of revenues is basically those programs, which perhaps you could run them a little more efficiently or whatnot, but basically 60% of the revenue coming in is taken up by those programs. The next line is interest, which last year was just about $500 billion. Defense, which was around $750 billion last year, and then all other was a trillion nine. Now, because of COVID in 20 and 21, that all other got to, in 21, got to almost $3 trillion. Interestingly enough, in 18 and 19, the pre-COVID years, it was under a trillion. So the CBO, Congressional Budget Office, does a forecast twice a year in January and May, and their forecast, the most recent forecast, has that number being a trillion four in 23 and kind of flatlining at that level. I believe that that there's probably 150 billion or something of savings there that may happen, especially with all revenue, all expenditure bills originate with the House of Representatives, which is being run by uh, the Republicans uh, this year and will be contested again in 24. I think there might be some saving on the Social Security, Medicare, whatnot. That 3.3 trillion, the, or the 3 trillion, 3.1 trillion in 22, the CBO by 25 has that up to 3.6 trillion, which looks pretty much in line with what's happened in past years. Here's, a, here's an interesting phenomenon. The CBO has revenues coming in, you know, across the board, individual taxes and whatnot. They flatline that at $5 trillion. They have our GNP going from $25 trillion to $28.6. I think the revenue forecast is, I, I think there's going to be more revenue in that. I actually think there's going to be more growth in GNP for that. Now, remember, Growth in GMP is inflation plus real growth. And the people who are calling for recession this year, recession is two quarters of real GMP decline. It's not clear that's going to happen this year. I mean, the jobs numbers are very strong. Uh, retail sales are very strong. You know, we'll see. And, of course, the government benefits from inflation because, you know, individual taxes will be up. Payroll tax will be up. Corporate income tax will be up. So 
uh, I'm thinking that they're a little conservative. On their three trillion going to three point six, I mean that's that's those those programs are grind on. On interest, they predict that the interest rate, the average interest rate paid in twenty two on on the public public the federal debt held by the public was two percent. They have that at two point six in twenty five. That seems low given the fact that the Fed funds rate is four percent and the ten year bonds, you know, three point seven and that seems low. But here is what these numbers show, which I think has enormous impact or will have enormous impact on all of us. It doesn't show a car wreck. It doesn't show, it looks like a muddle through. For example, the debt held by the, you know, we, we hear federal debt being 31 trillion. Well, that's, that's the one, that's a 31.2 subject to debt ceiling. But about six of that is held in social security accounts and Medicare accounts and whatnot. So it's actually held by the government. So the interest on that debt is paid back to the government. The debt held by the public was 24 trillion last year and the GMP was 25. By the time you get to 25 of the CBO numbers, the, the GMP is just under 29 trillion and the debt held by the public is around 29. So I know in past Wednesdays, earlier this year, last year, myself, uh, Mike Jason, wring your hands saying, you know, that there, there's, there's, there is, there are issues here. You know, it can impact the capital markets. We could have something happen like what happened in 08 and 09, where, where, you know, basically there was a period in the fall of 08 where, I mean, the capital markets just seized up. You know, no one would even do repo loans and the Federal Reserve had to come to the rescue. When I look at this, I can't rule out something like that happening. Uh, you can never rule it out, but it just looks very unlikely. It looks like more will muddle through. And maybe with the Republicans writing the expenditure bills and tax bills and whatnot, maybe we'll do a little better. Maybe, um, you know, rather than having 29 trillion of debt at the end of 25, maybe we'll have, maybe we'll be better by two or 300 billion. Or maybe, maybe that saving will go towards that interest rate. If, if the Federal Reserve keeps short rates high or longer, and you, you know, your, your average maturity of, of your federal debt is like five or six years, you know, maybe, maybe it'll be, the average interest rate will be three or three and a half percent or something by the time we get to 25. One comment, because it's that base rate, the economy, the tenure rate, that is going to impact how equities are valued. If you would think that it would be the inflation rate plus a point and a half or so, so there'd be real return out to that 10-year sovereign credit of the U.S. That's true, and that makes sense. And after all, interest rate is the price of money. However, if the Federal Reserve decides that they've done enough inflation combating and they bring the Fed funds rate from wherever it's going to get, I mean, it's going to get to four and a half or five in time, back down to two or two and a half, 
that can really impact that that 10-year bond because macro hedge funds or other investors can lever like 10, 15 times. They borrow money at you know two or two and a half because the, the rate at which they borrow will be about the Fed funds rate or very, very small premium to the Fed funds rate. And, you know, if they're borrowing at 2% and, and earning three, you know, earning 4%, which would be, you know, like 3% inflation rate plus a point or something, they'll, they'll do that all day long. So that spread between the 10-year rate and the, you know, the near-term rate, the 90-day rate or the 30-day rate, I don't know that it should be more than about 100 basis points. Now, the Federal Reserve could take some regulatory steps to keep that from happening, but I, I, I don't see that happening. So the overall pack, you know, the overall impact on equity valuations, you know, how much do you want to pay for Apple? How much do you want to pay for Microsoft? You know, I feel much better having, having done these numbers. That doesn't mean to say we should you know, if we're holding back 30, 30% cash or something, it doesn't mean to say we want to commit it all in the next 90 days. But this this is a much more sanguine picture than, that I have personally than, than before I pull these numbers together. And with that, we're, we've, I've, I've blown through 20 minutes, and we do have some tech stuff to get to. But for uh, Mike and Jason, anything to add? Anything I left out or misstated or what have you? No, I don't think so. I mean, I, this was reassuring to me for sure. And I think the, the only, you know, aside from the, it's less of an impact than I had expected as to what the actual average interest rate is and how it affects the government finances. Obviously, if that number were twice as high, it would be significant, but not, you know, it doesn't break the budget. The thing that worries me in this in general is the individual income tax forecast. I think that, you know, it's up 45% since 2019. So that's a pretty big jump up. And a lot of capital gains occurred during 2020 and 21 and 22 for that matter. So does that sustain? I'm, I'm not really sure. But in general, this definitely makes me more comfortable. Jason, what do you think? Yeah, I would encourage everyone to look at this sheet. There's there's a couple of interesting things in here that, you know, made me ask some questions to myself and, and I'll go do some research later. And particularly how during COVID the payroll tax collected did not increase yet, as Mike brought up, the individual income taxes, the collection there increased dramatically. So there's some interesting things going on with, you know, employment that that I'll I'll wanna look into personally. Yeah. Good. Sorry to blow so much time on it, but I, I've been worried about this and been trying to make time to do this and got it done. And it'll get better each week that Mike and Jason will contribute. and I'll do some more work on coming weekends and we'll sharpen it up. I'd like to turn to page two. Mike and Jason earlier or last year had a uh, stock position at Salesforce. Page two for the people that don't have the, the pages in front of them is uh, a lineup of Microsoft, Salesforce, Snowflake, and Oracle. And we have talked at length about software companies. Salesforce, other than Microsoft, I guess is the largest. It's still peanuts size compared to Microsoft. Microsoft's 
capitalization is just under $2 trillion and, and Salesforce is around $200 billion. But Salesforce is a pretty substantial entity and, and uh, it's part of the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Uh, it's got about three or four activist investors. It's uh, managed by one of its founders, very controversial. But the thing that really distinguishes it, before I turn it over to Mike and Jason, is its revenues are kind of in the 30 billion range. And on that 30 billion, only about 2 billion comes down to free cash flow. They spend a lot of money on sales and R&D. And the key question is, you know, how much of that sales expense and R&D expense is really a cost of producing that 32 billion of, uh, of revenues. I mean, what they identify as operating costs is only eight. So, I mean, that sounds like a pretty cool business. You have 30 billion, two billion of revenues and eight billion of, of operating costs. You have a big margin, but then five billion of GNA, I mean, five billion of R&D and 13 billion of sales. And pretty soon, pretty soon you're all the way down to two billion of free cash flow. So, I know Mike and I have talked about that this morning. Why don't we try Jason first? If Salesforce gets beaten up enough, or if you know either Benioff or or whoever will, will be the CEO can can make a significant change. I mean, could you could you imagine a turnaround where where uh, you have thirty billion of revenues and five or six billion of free cash flow? But Jason, how hard would that be to do, or is that not even in a reasonable area to, to think about. I kind of think it is possible. You know, Benioff's been been saying some some concerning things and some some positive things in the last month or so. So one of the things he said that leaked out of a, an internal meeting he had with Salesforce was kind of hugely unpopular at the workforce, but distinguishing the productivity of the in-office workers from the remote workers. And he highlighted how company culture being so critically important to Salesforce hasn't really been adopted by the new hires during the pandemic. You know, they've, they've never been into the office. They've only worked remotely. And, and he said, you know, quite frankly, that you're not as productive. And then he highlighted a specific metric that 50% of the sales team contributed 96% of sales. So you, you look at the, the sales and marketing number there being 13 billion. Can you, you can't just cut it in half, I assume, but there's gotta be a good chunk of savings there. And that's where, you know, his initial round of layoffs is focused. Where would a reasonable, I mean, I'm looking at Microsoft and Microsoft brings 30% of their revenues down to free cash flow. At, that would be nine or ten billion for Salesforce. I think that's out of any kind of reasonable range. And looking at Oracle, where maybe twenty percent of Oracle's revenues come down to free cash flow, twenty percent on thirty would be six. My my view is these businesses are worth about twenty times free cash flow if you if they have shown and and can can expect increase their free cash flow by at least ten percent a year. I mean, this thing would start to start to look investable with five or six billion free cash flow. What do you think? Mike? The problem with that is that doesn't really make that much money for the activists. I I assume that they're in at a level that that would 
that would be a break-even investment for the activists. So we, we exited our position in Salesforce at a loss and were really disappointed with um, a number of things, including the company's outlook for future EBITDA. They use adjusted EBITDA, and you have to back out what that actually means. And their goal was a 25% adjusted EBITDA in 2026 as the goal to get there. And then once you add back in share-based compensation, it's under 20%. And our expectation was that that would be more impressive. And I think that's what the activists want to see too. They, they expect to see far more cash flow generation. So if you go to the, the numbers that Jason just provided, if you could, if you got really aggressive with culling the ranks, if you will, and making the business more efficient, and we've seen what Twitter was able to do as far as keeping a software product up and running on you know maybe 10 to 20% of the staff. If you can do similar things. I, th- I think that's why the activist investors are there. And I, and I think it does take some activists to, you know, to cause that because Benioff has a, this family culture there. And, and while I said, I think it is possible that they could reach that. It, is it likely? I'm not sure because I don't think, you know, outside of activists stepping in that they would do that. And it's going to be one of the things that they said they're going to do is cut 5% of the bottom of their staff. That's going to be very difficult for a California company to do. It's not easy to let people go here in California. And if there's been any one single source of increased litigation, it's when people get laid off. And it's, that's, that's a challenging situation to be in. You're discussing California like it's France. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that bad, but it, it's, uh, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> It is challenging. We can't leave this page without having. Uh, I know. I know. Uh, uh, Jason's kind of a closet bull on Oracle, uh, and and uh, I I think it's probably the case he hasn't been able to bring Mike along. And if I recall, Jason's views from a prior Wednesday is that the acquisition of that healthcare business is pretty well thought through. And then despite Amazon and Azure being way ahead, the other two competitors in cloud are Oracle and uh, I mean, uh, Google and Oracle. So Oracle's kind of a number four in the cloud, but still making some progress. And presumably that acquisition of that healthcare records company is, you know, one of the advantages of that to Oracle is more cloud business. But we want to let Jason have the floor the remaining couple of minutes we have to explain why he thinks uh, Oracle is a worthwhile thing to think about as an investment. Right. My my opinion on them has changed. Uh, uh, in the past, I thought they were going to be completely disrupted by Microsoft and Amazon, but their database business has held up pretty well, and they've continued to innovate on it, kind of taking steps that that Microsoft has where they've lean more towards accepting the developers and and adopting open source technologies and mindset and oracles kind of doing the same now they've and when when i wasn't positive on them they i thought they were alienating software developers and their pricing structure incentivized you to to move your technology elsewhere but that since changed and they're doing a lot of uh, database innovation and and successfully 
winning new business there in the database space. Right. Page two, I have these free cash yields. I've got to update these numbers. These are numbers from early February, but I have these companies trading in a range of 2 and 3% free cash yield. This goes back to the discussion about Exhibit A. I, I still think, even though the federal finances look better, I still think that these companies should be in the four to five percent free cash range, which would be thirty to forty times free cash flow. Now, at the time I did this in February, early February, Microsoft was at three percent free cash yield or thirty times free cash yield. And despite it being a very large business, the the AI products that they're adding to Bing and the others probably are worth a few points in terms of growth and free cash flow. So while we spent the time on Salesforce and Oracle, if you're thinking that there'll be, you know, a debt ceiling crisis or something happened that will cause, you know, a 10 or 15% drawdown in the market, and you thought that, you know, that'd be an opportunity that to get a company that clearly, you know, has can benefit from AI and doesn't really have China exposure like Taiwan Semiconductor or NVIDIA would have. But I would say from a run through of Exhibit A, and we will both, Mike, Jason, myself, will do more work on Exhibit A, and we'll talk about it each of the next Wednesdays. Not as long as this today, but having a significant additional drawdown that will get your Microsoft down, down, you know, half half a percentage point or something in free cash yield is is a little less. I, I'd say it's a little less likely having gone through the work necessary to put Exhibit A together. With that, we've run over a little bit. Everyone, be well and stay healthy. And we'll be on next Wednesday. And once again, I'll I'll have Vivian send the four page cash price time allowed to go on the website. Take care, everyone. Bye bye. The views expressed on this podcast are the hosts alone and do not constitute an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy, any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. While certain information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, neither the hosts nor any of their employers or their affiliates have independently verified this information and its accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Accordingly, no representation or warranty expressed or implied is made as to and no reliance should be placed on the fairness, accuracy, timeliness, or completeness of this information. The hosts and all employers and their affiliated persons assume no liability for this information and no obligation to update the information or analysis contained herein in the future and may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned. 